0: Welcome to Radio Tamboa, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. This morning we would like to open up with comforting words from Isaiah chapter 9. Those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice after the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the road of their oppressor every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the lord almighty will accomplish this and this is the word of the lord for many the book of isaiah has been called the bible itself in one way or another especially because it has 66 chapters like the Bible. The first 39 and then the 27. Just stand still and be quiet and you will see how the Lord is going to fight for you. God is going to destroy all your enemies. Just trust him and wait upon him. Now, does the king Ahaz wait upon God and trust him? No. What does he do? He goes to the nation of Assyria, which these other two kingdoms are trying to fight against and asks Assyria to fight for him against the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. He not only calls them for their help, but he rewards them handsomely by picking vessels of silver and gold from the temple of the Lord and giving them to the heathen king of Assyria. He had a choice to trust God or trust the king of Assyria. He chose to not trust God and instead trusted a human king, a Gentile king of all things, the king of Assyria. Not only does he give him the goods from the house of the Lord, but he buys into the idolatry and the false worship of Assyria and basically throws the nation of Judah into the hands of the Gentiles in the name of trying to protect the kingdom. I don't need to tell you that certainly God is not happy with this arrangement. I don't need to tell you that because of Ahaz's unbelief, God will surely bring him to account. And so what does God do? In Isaiah's message, he tells King Ahaz that God is going to defeat Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel that have ganged against him. But God is also going to bring judgment on Judah on the basis of their unbelief against the Lord's revelation from the prophet. So what we have here is that Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, takes many of them into captivity. And the places that suffer the most are these two areas we had mentioned here, the land of Zebrun and Naphtali, which would have been in the borderline of Northern Israel. They are the ones from which many people were taken into slavery or captivity. And eventually we know that the kingdom of Assyria came and totally destroyed the Northern Kingdom of Israel, took the Jews into rather the Israelites into captivity, and many of them were never to return back into the land at the time that isaiah is writing assyria has basically destroyed northern israel and syria many of them are already in captivity and unfortunately assyria is also coming to attack jerusalem or attack the kingdom of judah even though they had sought his help to destroy their enemies so there is a lot of fear there is a lot of hopelessness then Isaiah scrolls, describes this situation as one full of anguish, one full of distress, one full of horror, one full of great fear of death. And as you can imagine, in the hearts of these people is a question, will God really come to our rescue? Will the God of Israel who made a covenant with our forefathers come to help us? When we encounter dark times, when our enemies come against us, when we go through even judgment on the basis of our own sin, where is the God of grace and mercy? Where is the God who rescued our forefathers? Where is the God who gave us promises of, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you? Where is this God who says that as an eagle carries its cheeks under its wings, I will cover you, O Israel? As you can imagine, God's people within these nations are rethinking the prophecies of the Old Testament, looking back at their religious culture, looking at the promises of God, and wondering whether God is still at work, whether God is still in charge of the lives of his people. And I want to believe that we are not any different from what this uh, crisis looks like in the nation of Judah at this time. That as god's people many times we find ourselves in serious trials and challenges sometimes these challenges are due to our own sinfulness and unbelief but sometimes these challenges come as a result of the sinful and broken world that we live in in this world you don't have to do anything wrong to suffer you don't have to someone else will do it for you There will always be somebody who, because of his behavior or because of his sinfulness, suffering and hardship will come upon you. And when these things come, our question we are always asking is, where is God in all this chaos and confusion? Is there a God who is still in charge? Does he really care about us? And unfortunately for many of us, times like this not only test our faith, But they question our theological convictions as believers and sometimes many of us turn our backs on the Lord. When we don't understand what is going on or why, we tend to conclude that maybe God no longer loves us as he once did. Or maybe he's no longer as powerful as he once was. Or maybe this Christianity is just a lot of noise and, and, and idleness. Perhaps we need to find better things to do. The educated run into science and philosophy, and try to find answers to the questions of life. And we see Judah panicking. We see Judah threatened by the terrors of war. And what do they do? They turn to the easiest visible things they can see. The kingdom of Assyria, the heathen nations around them. That's where they go to look for answers. That's where they go to look for help and assistance and they turn their backs on the God of the Bible. Terrible times, dark times, not just dark times in a sense that they have rebelled and walked away from God, which would be spiritual darkness, but that this war will also have political and economic implications upon the nation, which result into physical and economic darkness. So the darkness that Isaiah describes here is not just one of heart or one of belief, but it is also one of physical and economic challenges. That outwardly and inwardly, the people are in a state of crisis. And in this crisis, they must find out, is God still on our side, or has he left us to figure it out on our own? And if God is still on our side, how is God going to respond? So in our portion that we have read from verse 1 of chapter 9 to verse 7, is Isaiah's response to the unasked questions of the people. The people are looking and longing for a voice to speak comfort to them. They are wondering whether God is still on the throne and if at all he does care for them. Some of them of course have bought into the ways of the Gentile Assyrians and no longer care about God. But at least for those who still wonder where God is and whether he's still in charge, the prophet Isaiah has a message for them. That in times of darkness, whether physical or spiritual or economical, God is not silent. God is still at work. And when he shows up and speaks, he speaks good news. When he shows up and speaks, he brings a message of hope. Even in the midst of the judgment he has brought upon his people, his message still triumphs. So he says, nevertheless, there will be no more groom for those who are in distress. While in the past he humbled the land of Zebruni and the land of Naphtali, in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In the places where captivity began from, the people who first encountered God's judgment and were taken into captivity, God says, in that very place where my judgment fell, my grace will also be manifested. The people who first suffered and went into captivity, they are the first people who will see the great light. I don't know if you see a very powerful uh, display of grace and God's mercy here. That even when God has judged his people, he still has mercy upon them. That in the midst of this judgment, we see great grace the god who has given them over into captivity because the darkness of their sinfulness the darkness of their brokenness he says in the very same place where i executed my judgment my salvation will begin there now you also need to notice something here that while the nation of israel is being judged for its sinfulness these are god's covenant people that have turned their backs on him and therefore the holy god brings judgment on them but there is something interesting that he adds here that when he finally extends grace as his light shines upon them the light is shining upon the gallery of the nations now some other bible versions say gallery of the gentiles this land of Zebrun and Naphtali was kind of on the crossroads, kind of a roundabout where different roads from different countries, most of them Gentile territories, would be congregating. And what basically the prophet is saying is that in the restoration of God's people, God's great light will not just shine over covenant Israel, but it will even shine on the people that come from the Gentile nations and territories that surround God's people. So if judgment came upon God's people, great grace and mercy will come upon God's people, but even beyond them to the Gentiles that do not deserve it i don't know if you're getting it here that judgment is coming upon israel but salvation is coming upon all the nations that are gathered within the territory in which god's people live in other words what the prophet is saying is that no matter what kind of judgment grace will always triumph over that judgment that grace will be in much fuller measure than the judgment that was unleashed That the people in the midst of much deserved judgment will look at the fullness of the measure of god's grace and be able to say wow here we are thinking we deserve to die and indeed rightfully so but now we who deserve to die are being given much more grace than the judgment we received what a mighty god what a gracious god what a wonder That we who deserve to die, we who should be in darkness, a great light is shining upon us. And beyond us, it is shining even upon undeserving Gentiles and nations. Amazing. When we sing amazing grace, this is what really we are talking about. That while we may understand that we do receive the judgment of God that we do deserve, we do not understand the grace that he gives us that indeed we do not deserve. It is not only undeserved, but it is amazing. It is beyond our understanding and comprehension that even in God giving us that undeserved grace, he amazes and surprises us. That it goes far beyond our wildest imagination. And this is what the prophet is saying. That this is good news for you, Israel. Why? Because God's grace will triumph over the judgment that has come upon you. That in the gallery of the nations, in that place that was despised, where everybody thought God had given them over never to rise up again, when God's great light of salvation finally shines, it will begin at that place of the despised. It will begin at that place where everybody has given upon you. It will begin at that place where everybody has written you off and concluded nothing can ever come out of you. You remember those words when Jesus is beginning his ministry. And this old man Nathaniel asks, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But you are surprised. When Jesus begins his ministry, even though he was born in Bethlehem, his ministry is centered in Nazareth. Right in that place where they said nothing good can ever come. It is the very place where the ministry is centered, as we shall see. Matthew conne- makes a connection for us and helps us to understand what the prophet Isaiah is talking about. In Matthew chapter 4, you read from verses 12 to verse 16 and listen to what he says. He withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebron and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebrun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It was in this very despised place, in this judged place, In this way, God's people were scattered and taken off into captivity by Assyria, that Jesus began his wonderful ministry of restoration and transformation. It was in this place where he called the first disciples, men and women, who all their days were in the business of killing fish. And he says, now you will give life to men. You were fishers of fish, but from now on you will be fishers of men. You are the men who take away life from now on you will give life to the dead message of powerful transformation and restoration begins in the very place where it was said that nothing good can ever come now if you listen very carefully how isaiah describes this wonderful message of restoration you will be amazed the prophet not only says that a great light has shone upon God's people, but do you notice that when he says it, he says it in the past tense. Then you actually call it past and present tense. You would think that the prophet should be saying, "A great light will shine someday," where well, we don't know. So God's people hanging there, most likely, if God is happy, who knows? You never know. Maybe one of these days, or soon or later, somehow He will do something. That's not the Isaiah's, the Isaiah's message. Isaiah is not saying someday, who knows, maybe in the future. No, no, no. He's saying a great light has shone. He speaks of it as if it has already happened. Because when God speaks, he is committed to bringing his word to come to pass. Come rain, come sunshine. The prophet does not need to mention it as something that will yet happen because God has already decreed it and it must come to pass. So the prophet in the voice of faith proclaims it as though it has already happened. It's not just a message of hope, but it's a message of an unwavering certainty that God is committed and he will do it. And when we read the end of verse 7, if you remember where well, this very passage concludes saying that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, meaning he will not fail. He will not fail. It is as good as come true already right now here. When we receive the word of God, we receive it with those eyes of faith that God is committed to his word and it can never go back empty without achieving the purpose for which it was said. Clearly, it's a message of hope. But the prophet Isaiah describes this hope hope for us very well. Not only does he say, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. But he says they rejoice before you as the people at harvest. Now remember, the people he is talking to are a people at the brink of war. They have already seen what Assyria has done to the northern kingdom and Syria. They already know the king of Assyria is on the way and he's knocking on the doors of Jerusalem. You would think the prophet is crazy to be telling them about rejoicing at a time when everybody is trying to run as fast as their legs can take them. But remember the prophet is seeing with the eyes of faith. He is seeing God's promise has already come to fruition. And he looks at them at the time when God has restored them. And he describes their joy as one that comes when you are harvesting After all those years of hard labor and digging and waking up late and rather early and sleeping late and and finally you stand in the garden of wonderful fruits and you are saying, wow, at last, now I can enjoy. He says that is how their restoration will look like, that they will look back and their years of sorrow and pain cannot match the bountiful harvest that stands before them. In other words, in the face of what God is going to do among them, it will be so wonderful that it will even cause them to forget the pain and the sorrow they went through. You remember, uh, the apostle John is the one who describes the birth of a child. And he says that when a woman is in labor, she travails in great pain. But at the sight of the newborn baby, the joy of the baby first surpasses the labor pains. That the woman even kind of forgets what she went through before. I don't really think she forgets. I think what happens is that the joy is just too much that for a moment she does not think about the C-section or the pushing that she went through for the last 24 hours. I hope mothers do agree with me. But this is how Isaiah describes their restoration then he uses the warrior's language and he says that as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder for as in the day of Midian's defeat you have shattered the yoke that burdens them number one he describes their victory as one of warriors who have come back from war you know when you are going for war you are very scared you are very frightened you are unsure there is no guarantee that you are going to come back right Nobody ever goes to war saying, me, I'm going to show them. You see, I will shatter them and I will just come back smiling. Nobody has that confidence when you are going for war. But you see, when you are coming back after defeating the enemy, you already know what victory looks like. You are not worried that somebody is going to stab you in the back because you have already finished all of them. So if you went wild, tiptoeing and looking through the bushes, now you come whistling. <coughs> You know the big man. And Isaiah is saying that this is how God is going to restore these people. In the midst of distress and in the sounds of war. The prophet looks beyond their darkness and says, Brothers, the light is coming. The light is coming. Take heart. And when this great light has come, you will behave like the warriors who have come out of war. And you see, they have not just won the war. They have also won the properties of the people they defeated. Now it's time to share the plunder, to share the things that they recovered from the people they defeated. This is not just a question of coming back alive, it's a question of also sharing in the riches that you have gathered together. And the prophet Isaiah reminds them remember that this war is, this victory is not going to be like the wars of the world that you know. In verse 4, he says that for us in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and the burdens that burdens them. Why does the prophet recall the battle of Midian? Now, the battle of Midian is found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. But why is it important that the prophet should remind these people at the blink of war about what is happening in the book of Judges? Now, if you've read Judges chapter 6 and 7, you will remember that this was at the time of Gideon when God sends him to fight against the Midianites and he tells him to reduce the numbers of soldiers eventually Gideon goes with only 300 men against a battle of thousands of battle-hardened soldiers what was the whole logic so that when you have defeated them You will not forget and think it was by your power that you were able to defeat them, but that the hand of the Lord was with you. So the reason the prophet reminds us about Midian's defeat is that this defeat was not because of the military power of Gideon and his soldiers, but rather the hand of God. In other words, the prophet is saying that your victory will not be a result of your efforts. Your victory will not be a consequence of your wisdom and smartness. It will not be because you are well-placed, or you are rich, or you have connections, no. Your victory will be because God's powerful hand has struck your enemies and has brought you out triumphant. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. So when you rejoice, remember, your victory is an act of God's grace, not one of human effort. Just as Gideon with 300 men defeated thousands of the Midianites with almost nothing on his part. The prophet Isaiah says, as in those days of Midian's defeat, God will do the same by his power. That God's people are called to watch and wait. That God's people are called to trust in him and obey. And as they seek to live their lives in honor of his name and holiness, God, who is the chief warrior, will not only fight for them, but will hand over a victory and once for all. Please notice what he says here. That their they, they boots used in the battle, their garments that are rolled in blood, will be destined for burning in the fire. No more war. Weapons are taken away. Clothes for the battle are burned. Boots are destroyed. Why? Because when God fights a battle, he fights once for all. And what he's talking about is that they will see a time when God not only defeats their enemies, but ushers in a reign of peace and prosperity, a reign where they no longer have to fear any enemy, Because God will not only have fought for them, but he will have fought for them once for all and completely. Now it's very easy to rejoice in the promise of this restoration. But it's also very easy to forget why this restoration is coming about. It is very easy to read about the victory and the sharing of plunder and, 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 and the rejoicing as of harvest. And then walk away saying, yeah, this is what it means to be a Christian. When you become a Christian, things are already better. But is that what the prophet Isaiah really is saying? No. Did the nation of Judah ever encounter other wars after this? Sure. In fact, a few years later, they were taken over into Babylon, where they would be in exile for about seventy years. So this is not what we are talking about—immunity from suffering. The prophet Isaiah is not just telling them about the good times. More importantly, he is telling them about the why of good times. Why will there be good times? Because a great light is coming. Because a great light has dawned. The people who walked in darkness and in the shadow of death will no longer need to walk in darkness because a great light has come. In this passage, as we look at it today and even next Sunday, we will be seeing the two reasons that form the basis for this this restoration. Number one is that a great light has come. Number two, as we read from verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And we will look at that portion of verses 6 and 7 next Sunday. But for today and for a moment, let's focus a little bit on this great light that dispels the darkness. What is Isaiah talking about here? In the first five verses, you notice that there is a contrast between a life of deep darkness and a life of great and marvelous shining light. And as Isaiah uses these words, or what we call figures of speech, he basically wants us to understand what does it mean to walk in darkness, and what does it mean to actually be delivered from this darkness and walk in light. And the difference between light and darkness is that a great light has shone among God's people, and that light does make a difference. Now, you remember Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, as we read. Matthew brought the connection between this great light and the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And basically what Matthew is saying, that that great light that has shone is none other than Jesus himself. That this light is not just light, it's wrapped up in a person. That if you want to get out of the darkness of this world... No matter what kind of darkness this is, you must look to the light. You must look to the person. You must look to Jesus, both in who he is and in the ministry that he carries out. And according to Matthew, we see him carry out this ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. As he heals the sick, restores sight to the blind, causes the lame to walk, proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. In verses 16 and 17, he proclaims the message of repentance and restoration. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, what the prophet Isaiah seems to be saying here is that this very light itself does not come apart from the person of Jesus himself. No wonder he makes the connection and says, for to us a child is born. That the light will only come in the person of the child, in the person of the son who is given that you cannot even begin to imagine God's deliverance or God's restoration apart from the person of Jesus Christ, which is what Christmas really is about. That Christmas is God coming among men. That Christmas is God bringing the light of his glory to shine upon a dark world. But that this light is wrapped up in the baby that is lying in Bethlehem's manger. That this light is wrapped up in although a child born of a human being is actually the eternal son of God. And that you cannot begin to comprehend this light until you come face to face to Jesus and Jesus alone. When Jesus was presented in the temple shortly after his birth, Simeon who had been living at the temple and waiting for for God's salvation had this to remark. He said that this child would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Old Simeon looked in the baby that was wrapped in Mary's hands and the conclusion he could make under the guidance of God's spirit was that this is no ordinary child. This is not just a baby. But this is the light of the Gentiles by whom the people walking in darkness will now begin to see. And when they begin to see, God will be glorified. He connects the end result, the glory of God, with the means of Christ who is going to be the light of revelation. That through him, many will know who God is and will bring glory to him. While Isaiah prophesied that this was coming, The Apostle John reported it and confirmed it in the New Testament. He described Jesus as the word that brought life. But this word was not just the word. He was the light of men. He was the light of life. In John 1 verses 4 and 5 we read that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. has not overcome it he also identifies Jesus as the light he identifies the son of God the savior of the world as the light that dispels the darkness of sin and death and destruction and says when Jesus comes in the picture darkness must go darkness cannot comprehend him John also describes Jesus as the true light which was coming into the world and enlightens every man Jesus himself confirms that he was that light. In John 8 verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice the contrast again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have what? Will have the light of life. That Jesus is the light of the world, who gives the light of life. People who believe in him or who follow him, no longer walk in the darkness and the fear that characterizes it, but receives the light of life. An encounter with Jesus, not only dispels darkness, but it offers life that is eternal. We're not just talking about running away from darkness. No, more importantly, we are talking about running into life Running into the light of God's glory. Many of us, if you remember very well, especially those of you who got saved like in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, you may remember what kind of gospel we were hearing in those days. And if I remember very well, a lot of it, frankly, was about the fear of hell. Many of us came to Jesus because we feared to go to hell. I remember preachers standing at the crusades and singing songs like, Where will you go when the trumpet of judgment is blown? And you will find yourself in fire, where for a thousand years even the tip of your finger will burn and not be consumed. And we would hear those pictures of hell and the ugliness that characterizes it, and we would say, Wow, there is no other option but to follow Jesus. We came running for the altar call. We come in tears, not tears of love for Jesus, but tears of fear of hell. But you know that's not really the gospel. As much as it has some truth to it, it's not really the whole gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just running away from darkness. But more importantly, it is the call into light. It is the call into life. That when Jesus calls people, he does not say, come to me so you can escape hell. No, 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 no. He says, Come to me because I will put you into the light that only Jesus offers. He says, Come to me because I will give you the life that you desperately long for. It's not just a fear of darkness, it is the delight of light and what that light stands for that woos us, that encourages us, that, that motivates us to want a relationship with Jesus. We come out of love, we come out of yearning for that light and not just out of fear of the darkness. And Jesus says, who who believes in me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says in John 12 verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. That those who believe in Jesus will no longer remain in darkness, but will begin to walk in the light of his glory. Jesus was the light of the world. And in this light, darkness was overcome. Darkness was dispelled. The sinful and evil world was brought under control by the light of God's glory. On Calvary's cross, before Jesus died, One of the things that are described is three hours of darkness. The darkness that engulfed the whole world to the fear and amazement of everyone. And you may wonder, what was the purpose of this darkness? Well, in one way or another, we could look at this darkness as one that was signifying the rejection of the true light. You remember what Jesus says in John 12? That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected him but those who believed in him he gave them the power to become children of god if there is anything that the darkness at the cross signifies is the rejection of the light by the world of men That even when he came among his own they were so much in love and in normal living with the darkness that the light scared and threatened him and no wonder they wanted to get rid of jesus There comes a time when men get used to the darkness and it's all they know. And they are scared of the light because the light exposes them for who they are. So what is the best way to to run away from the guilt that is brought by the light? Hide in the shadows of darkness more and more. Fight against anything that exposes you. And this is what we see in Jesus' day. This is what we see that led to the crucifixion. That men loved darkness more than light. And they did everything possible to extinguish that light. And when Jesus was dying on Calvary's cross, there was a firm reminder from heaven. It's like the father was saying, see what happens when you reject the light. Are you sure you love this darkness? Are you sure this is what you want to go back to? But in spite of the sign, men went ahead and killed Jesus, the only true light of the world. But that light was not not extinguished completely, thank God. That in his zeal and power, God who promised that light would shine and continually shine, did not let Jesus rot in the grave. On the third day, he rose again. And never to die anymore. Darkness was dispelled for real. Never to take control of the hearts of God's people. And this same Jesus today says, it is possible to walk in the light. It is possible never to live in the shadows of darkness anymore. Why? Because Jesus has entered into our darkness. And right in the midst of that very darkness, his light has overcome it. Praise the Lord. Jesus did not just walk around the streets of Jerusalem telling people, hey, I am the light of the world and when I come, the darkness goes away. No, he practically engaged the darkness. He practically went into the world of the dead. He had a combat battle with the evil powers of darkness. He overcame them and triumphed over death and the grave and is alive forevermore. And today Jesus does not just say come to me and you will no longer walk in darkness. He says come and meet the one who overcame darkness. You want proof that he did? He's alive forevermore. Are you scared of the darkness? Jesus was there in the very darkness with you. Are you worried of what the darkness can do to you? Jesus was in the darkness. It killed him for a while and now as the overcomer he says come to me i overcame the darkness i will enable you to overcome it you no longer have to walk in the shadows you can now walk in the light of life and the light of god's glory brothers and sisters that is the message of the gospel that jesus the great light has come that jesus the light of the world is now shining And men have a choice. You can reject the only true light and continue to walk in the darkness that you have been in. Or you can embrace the light and begin to walk. Not only walking in that light, but the light that gives life eternal. And we continue to see two sides of the coin. That in the history of life, men have always found themselves on those two sides. Either they have loved the darkness and rejected everything Jesus stands for. And continue to walk into darkness and into eternal damnation. Or they have embraced the light by the grace of God. And now are being called to walk in light. You see, when Jesus calls us... He doesn't just say, come and receive the light that I offer you. Now, that is good news for sure. But Jesus' father says, come and be the light. Because when I am with you and in you as the light of the world, you also become light. And that's why he calls his disciples, he says, you are the light of the world. No one gets a lamp and puts it under a basket. You put the lamp on a pillar and put it on top there, where the whole world can begin to see and come out of the shadows of that darkness as they follow the light. So, Jesus not only calls us to be, to walk into that light, He gives us that light and makes us that light to the many that are still in darkness. That now, by our manner of living, in our words and in our actions, the world can see the light of God's glory and come out of the darkness. That we are now walking light. We have not only received the gospel, we have become the gospel. And through us and by us, the many who continue to walk in darkness can actually see the light of God's glory. And that's why as believers, we cannot continue to live business as usual. No. If the light of life has changed us, we must now begin to walk as children of the light, and our lives must reflect that we have been changed by the Jesus, who is the light of the world. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 from verses 6 and 11, listen to what he says. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience You see the comparison between darkness and light again. There are God's people who have been redeemed, who have received and believed the gospel. Not only have we received the right to become children of God, but we have become children of light. The light of the world. That now we are joined with Jesus in a campaign against darkness. Which is why we can no longer engage or indulge in the things and fruits of darkness. That now we must walk in light. And as we walk in light, we expose the darkness wherever we find it. The people living in darkness, we offer them a choice that they cannot avoid. Either they run into deeper darkness or they run out of the darkness into light. But we must be that light. Because unless they see the light, they will continue groping in darkness, not knowing where to go or what to do. When you are in darkness, you are not sure where you are going. So you keep stumbling and looking for things, you know. But when the light comes, you poke it and walk with confidence. Because you know where you are going. You can see what you are doing. And that's what it means to walk in the light. That when the, the Son of God comes, when the child is born, when Christmas comes in the picture, it changes everything. The people who were walking in darkness, a great light has shone upon them. The people who were in distress and as in the shadows of death, a great light has shone upon them. And that light is Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus who gives the light of life. Jesus who calls us, we who once were darkness, to become light in him. Jesus who gives us a great mandate of the commission. And he now says, go shine out as lights in the dark world. That we who once walked in darkness, we who were liable for the judgment of God, can now walk with confidence and boldness in the light of Christ. And can now proclaim the good news of the gospel. If there is anything our lives say today as Christians, is that it is possible to walk in the light. And that many who are in darkness need to know that there is an alternative. That the light has shone and they no longer need to live in their chains and in their fears and the horrors of death like they did before. Why Christmas is here? Why Jesus has come? Why He calls us, come to me, you who are weary, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from that darkness, rest from destruction, rest from death, rest from fear. Come And to all who believed in him, to all who received him, he gave them the right, the power to become children of God, to become lights in the dark world. And now because of Jesus, we can face this new year with confidence and hope that no matter the shadows of darkness that we encounter at every corner and every turn, we are the light that shines into that darkness. I cannot promise you that this year will be better than 2020. I cannot promise you that this year might not be worse than 2020 was. And what matters really is not how this year turns out. But what I need to remind you of is that when it gets much darker, it shines much brighter. And no matter what the darkness we will encounter in 2021, we will not only realize that we walk into it with Jesus, the light of the world but we walk into it as lights in the dark world. So when darkness comes our way, it's time to shine brighter. It's time to shine more, not to complain, not to wonder why, but to let the light shine. So that the people in darkness can see the great light, the light of Jesus as it shines in and through us. Precious Lord, we thank you. That in Christ Jesus we have found the hope that we never expected, never deserved. That we who were in the distress and anguish of darkness, that we who in every way deserved the destruction that was coming our way, we found hope in Christ. Hope in a child that was born, in a son that was given. This son that was mighty God, that was wonderful counselor, that was prince of peace, that was everlasting father. And he says, come down. I will go ahead of you and fight for you. Oh, how we are truly grateful for such a gift of grace. As we gather here, amazed by how you intervened in our destruction to bring light and peace and hope. We pray, precious Lord, that we would never lose sight of this wonderful truth that as our world continues to get darker with the hard-heartedness of men, with the brokenness of sin and evil in this world, may we shine all the more brighter, that men in darkness have no excuse, but looking by the light that is in us, will find their way out of darkness into your glorious light of life. May we be the church that shines brighter in this dark world, May we be the individual Christians whose testimony and conviction that Jesus is Lord will not only remain ours in our privacy, but will be shared far and wide that all may know that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.